for this sermon, every year in our church, we have a sermon where we stop about a month out from a meeting where we're taking commendations for elders and deacons, and, and we look at what the Bible has to say about how to organize our church, and we think about what God has to say about that. So that's what this sermon is. It's a standalone sermon that we do annually, roughly annually. Um, and so uh, for the reading, we're going to be in 1 Timothy, which obviously is the series we're going through right now. But it's not just a sermon from 1 Timothy. We're using the whole counsel of the scriptures um, in this sermon. But we'll be reading 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. If you are using the Bible in the pew rack, or not, uh, I keep calling it that, the Bible we just distributed to you, uh, it's on page 992. 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 15. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, or women, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, Faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. You can be seated as we pray. Father, we just sang a prayer that your Holy Spirit would be working in our midst, in our own hearts. And we know one of his primary tools is your word. And so we pray that your spirit would use this word to help us and grow us individually in how we think about your church and collectively as we act as, a, as a, your body. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't worry, says your contractor. Even though the engineer said this beam is important, 
I think your house will look a lot better without it. Don't worry, your surgeon says. Though the manufacturer says this joint should only be used for shoulders, we're going to be using it for your hip replacement. I'm sure it'll go just fine. We might kind of snicker at the absurdity of these examples. But I think sometimes we can approach church and fall into those kind of errors. God is the builder of the church. He's the one that caused it to exist. And his plans should be what drive us. We look to God's word to shape how we think about how to organize and manage and structure our church. But sometimes we're more inclined to think about our own ideas and come up with our own brilliant schemes instead of looking to the one who tells us what we're to be about. And so the goal of this time this morning is really to say, what are the things that are really clear in the Bible about how we manage or organize ourselves as a church? Now that might not seem like the most riveting of sermons, but remember what we just read from 1 Timothy 3, that God has designed the church to be a pillar and buttress of truth. It's supposed to hold out the goodness of the gospel and display it. That's why we've been seeing in, our, in the themes of 1 Timothy, this heart of God our Savior for all to be saved. So if you're a visitor with us this morning, maybe you're not a follower of Christ, know that we're talking about these things because God cares for you and we care for you. We want our church to be structured by God so that we can be the best possible display of what our, our, our God is like and to tell his gospel well. My job as a pastor is not to get into all the weeds and minutia of how this church or that church works things out. My job is to make sure that as best as we can, the clear things from the Bible are what are driving us as a church. I think of uh, these, these big Lego sets you give your kids, right? Imagine giving your kid all the Legos from that set, but with no picture and no instructions and saying, you know, build a donut shop or whatever it would be. I mean, they'd probably come up with something creative and interesting, and there'd be something beautiful in that, but it it would be nothing like the beautiful thing that the, the designer intended it to be. So we want to look to the instruction booklet. We want to see what has God designed it to be. So we can, we, we can build it accordingly. So our path for that this morning is we're going to look at four kind of major pillars, major building blocks for how the church should be organized. And, and, and we're going to see those from Scripture. And then I'm just going to make a few comments at the end about how we at Maple Avenue have organized ourselves in light of those principles. Does that make sense? And the, the first principle, the first pillar, is that Christ is the head of the church, and he rules the church through his word. Christ is the head of the church, and he rules the church through his word. Sometimes in church circles, there's these discussions. Is this more of a top-down church or a bottom-up church? Is this more of a centralized authority, or is this more grassroots? And our church is decidedly and unapologetically top-down. We are a monarchy. 
But here's the catch. It's no human that is the head of it. It's Christ. It's not the senior pastor. It's not the oldest member or the wealthiest member. It's not the loudest voice. It is Christ who is the head of the church. All that matters, he's the one who gave himself to redeem us. He's the one who the Bible describes as the head of the church. All that matters is what he has to say. Absolute authority. I just want to make sure I'm establishing all this from Scripture. So even if that might be an intuitive point to many of us, because it's taught so throughout the Scriptures, just look at the book of Ephesians, or Colossians, I mean. You can find it on page 983. Colossians chapter 1, we'll start at. Here's where it just says that Jesus is the head of the church. Colossians 1.18, and he, meaning Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now look in chapter 2, in verse 19, how this gets picked up. He's rebuking Christians who go a wrong direction, and it says, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that's from God. We only grow when we're holding fast to that head. We move away from that, it spells danger for our church. And this, in chapter 3, it says this, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. How do we follow the head? It's by letting the word of Christ dwell amongst us. So that's just to show us Christ is the head. He rules the church through his word. Absolute authority. None of us really matter. It just has, just what he has to say matters. That's really the foundation of all the other points because all the other points are looking to the Bible to guide how we do things because Christ is the head of the church. So that's the first point. Christ is the head of this church. He rules the church through his word. The second one is that God holds the church accountable for what it tolerates. God holds the church accountable for what it tolerates. I don't know how well you know various churches and denominations, but Baptist churches are unique in that we give the congregation a certain authority amongst us. They can vote and have input on some things. A lot, a lot of denominations and churches aren't like that. Why do Baptists do that? And it's not just Baptists, but why do we do that? Well, it's because there are several places in Scripture where God holds the entire community accountable for what it's tolerating. So you think of the book of Galatians, which is writing an area where there are several churches that are tolerating a different gospel. And, and God, God doesn't just address the leaders of the church. He addresses the entire church and rebukes them for tolerating a different gospel. Or in the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 5, the church has been tolerating some gross immorality in its midst. 
And Paul doesn't just say, okay, leaders of the church, I need to talk to you. You got to deal with this. He actually takes the entire church to task for it and says, all of you need to collectively take action about this. So here's how the logic goes. If the whole church is going to be held accountable for something, then that church needs to have ability to do something about it. And that's why at a kind of down here on earth level, the buck stops with the congregation. In that sense, it's kind of the final authority. If God's going to hold us accountable for what we tolerate, then we have to have the ability to do something about it. Now, that, that is, within the scriptures I'm talking about, that, that is specifically about tolerating either doctrine or a lifestyle that undercuts the gospel or that makes the gospel seem false. So biblically, it's limited to that. Now, within our church, we have... We vote on more things than a lot of Baptist churches. We vote on more things than just those two things. But biblically, that's the principle we're looking at. We have good reasons for why we allow more votes than just that. But, but really, the, the biblical principle here is that, that the church itself is responsible for making sure that its teaching and its living is in accordance with the gospel. That's principle number two, pillar number two. The third pillar is the one I'll spend the most time on, and that is the church is to be led by elders. I, sorry, I left that a word. The church is to be led by a plurality of elders. The church is to be led by a plurality of elders. That word plurality just means more than one. So there are actually only two offices, church offices, that the Bible establishes. One is elder or overseer, and the other is deacon. Interestingly, there's no office of pastor established in the Bible. It's just a, a gift that people have and, and, a, and a task that elders and overseers are given to do, but it's not an office. The office is elder, overseer, and deacon. And as it relates to elders, it's really clear that when God sets up a church, he wants a plurality, more than one elder functioning in leadership of that church. So in Titus chapter 1, Titus is told to appoint elders, plural, within the church. In the book we're studying right now, 1 Timothy Obviously, there's criteria or qualifications given for elders, but in chapter 5, when he talks about dealing with elders, he talks about how there's two different kinds of elders, some, some that labor at preaching and teaching. So that implies there are more than one elder. There is more than one elder at work in that body. In Acts 14, verse 23, we're told that it was Paul's practice when he would plant a church to establish elders, plural, in that Area. And in James chapter 5, when we're sick and we're supposed to call on the leadership of a church, it says call on elders, plural. So it's clear that God wants more than one person in this role of elder or overseer. Why is that? Well, it's because we're fallen. We're finite. We don't have the corner on wisdom. It would not be a good thing for this church if me or any other man was the guy. 
Because we make mistakes. I make mistakes. I err. You guys know that. You've seen me do it. We need a body. We don't have a pope. We don't have this person. We have a plurality of elders. More than one. Now, the Bible doesn't say the number. It doesn't need X number of elders. It just says more than one. And we can figure it out from there. But aside from it needing to be more than one, what does the Bible say about these elders? What's important to God in these elders overseers? I want, I want to talk about the, the qualifications, and I want to talk about the task of elders. What are the qualifications for, for elders, and what is the task given to elders? Because I think the Bible is really on about those two themes. For qualifications, it's clear that that's what it's on about because you have this long passage that I just read in 1 Timothy 3 where the qualifications for elders are spelled out or overseers there are spelled out in great detail. And then also, again, in the book of Titus, there's qualifications given for these elders. It's really important to God. And as you read through those lists or you heard me read through those things, you can tell most of the stuff in there is just, you gotta be a healthy godly Christian. It's not like you look through that list and think, well, most Christians don't need to live that way, but it'd be good for elders to. Uh, I was just away with, uh, uh, on a staff retreat on th- Saturday, Friday and Saturday, and uh, one of the things we do is we ask the wives to just share different ways to pray for their families, and two of the, two of the wives specifically were thinking about their sons and saying, think of the, about the elder qualifications and just pray that way for them. Not because they wanted them to be elders, just because that's what godly men should be like. And it's true. There, there, are some, there are some traits that stand out that are different. One is just a certain length of time being a Christian, but the other one is the ability to teach. Apt to teach is what we read in 1 Timothy 3. In Titus chapter 1, it says, the ability to give instruction in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict it. So basically what God's saying is the qualifications, I I want you to think within your midst about who are the men who best embody godliness. And then from from that group of men, find out the ones who who are good with the Bible, who really are are gifted in being able to understand and and find what the sound doctrine is and and refute those who contradict it from the scriptures, who who are word men. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because of that first point, Christ rules the church, and he rules the church through his word. So who do we want leading the church? We want the word men to be at that helm because they're not about their own agenda or about what they think is best, but they're word men. And you'd say, this is what Christ has said, so let's do our best to try and live this out. So men who embody those godly qualifications, who are able to teach, the word men of the church lead, they're elders, and they do that because they're able to look to the word and say, this is what Christ is saying. It's the qualifications. Now, um, I've grown up in the church, and I know my own heart. And I know a lot of times it's tempting to hoist upon the office of elder our own qualifications. 
I want some, I, th- I think the elders need this skill set. So let's try and find someone who, who has that skill set. I think the elders need this kind of personality. So let's find someone who has this kind of personality and put them on the elders. Maybe, I, I just kind of think like this person. I, I want somebody who thinks like me on the elders. So let's find someone who thinks like me. These are the guys I work most closely with as, as a fellow elder. So you can, you can imagine for me, I want somebody I click with, right? That can be a temptation to say, that's what we should be putting there. No. That's not what we should be looking for. It's not who has been in the church the longest, who has the loudest voice. It's not who, who I connect with. It's not who's the most prominent member. In fact, we will be damaging the church because God has established the qualifications. So we must, all of us, make sure that it's the qualifications that God has given that establish who becomes an elder in our church. And it's qualifications. The Bible also has a lot to say about the task of an elder. At a certain level, you could say all of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are addressing the task of the elders within the church. But, but, but even just kind of bring all that information together and kind of break down the task into two basic categories. And, and the first category is to lead. We mentioned that the other term for elder is overseer. You can even hear in that term, you're supposed to kind of lead and manage. That's what an overseer does. An elder in that day, the elders of the synagogue or the elders of our tribe or clan or whatever would be the leaders of that tribe or clan. So we we understand that there's leadership involved in being an overseer or an elder. But as you dig down into all the instructions that are given in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus, central to that is is leading the church theologically and philosophically. What are the principles that are going to be guiding us as a church and building that from God's word? So designing the church around God's word, thinking theologically and philosophically and setting the course that way. That kind of leadership is imperative. And then the, so so leading, setting theological, philosophical direction, task, and the other task is shepherding. Um, I wanted to read from 1 Peter 5. You can turn there with me. I'll tell you the page number in just a moment. It's on page 1016. 1016. First Peter 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd. That's where we get that word pastor. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight not under compulsion but willingly as God would have you not for shameful gain but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. 
See, that main command is to shepherd because there's a chief shepherd. So we're, we're to lead, setting theological and philosophical direction, and we're to shepherd. That's what elders are called to. That is their task. You could talk about a lot of other stuff, but biblically, those are central in what the elder is called to. I want to just make one other comment. Um, the, Bible, the Bible establishes this as a, as a headship office within the church that, that uniquely God has called on the men of the church to fill that. It's, it's, a, it's a male role. Now, if that, if that is jarring to you or, or agitating, we're, we're, we're preaching through 1 Timothy, and in the coming weeks, in the next few weeks, we're going to be spelling that out in greater detail and understanding what God's heart is in doing that. So I, I don't have time in this sermon to do that, but I just wanted to make, make that known that in our church, uh, the elders of our church are men. So that was, that's kind of that third area, is, is the church is led by a plurality of elders. And, and the fourth pillar that I want to look at is that the elders are aided by deacons. The elders are aided by deacons. Back in 1 Timothy 3, we saw, um, we saw the qualifications. Right after the qualifications for elder, it gives qualifications for deacons. And uh, so we know, again, kind of what the qualifications are. Very similar to what the qualifications for elder. It's, it's not, there's not the length of time being a believer that's given there or apt to teach, though you do have to hold the mystery of the faith. There's, it encourages, or it says they should be tested first, meaning you see how they serve before you put them into a role like that. But it's really just kind of, we should be looking to those qualifications to say who should be our deacons. I'm not going to go um, at length on that again, because we already talked about that with elders. But what is their task, biblically? It's a, it's a little less clear, a little more ambiguous in Scripture. Um, but... but Deacons are basically talked about in two places. 1 Timothy 3, where the qualifications are given, and Acts 6, where the first deacons are appointed. Now, the word deacon just means servant. If they had translated the Greek word, it would, they would be called servants. So that already right there hints at kind of what, what the charge of a deacon is, what the task of a deacon is. But when you look at Acts chapter 6, it really kind of puts flesh on this. So the apostles, who were the ones at that stage in the church which were charged with doing word ministry and setting the direction in terms of God's word, the apostles were becoming burdened by these administrative responsibilities of making sure all the different widows were cared for in a fair and equal way. And they, they were becoming distracted. In, not distra like it was so near to their heart, they wanted to make sure it was done well, but that was requiring so much of their attention that it was hard to give the attention to the word of God. And so that's when deacons emerge. They come along to take weight, administrative weight off of those apostles to free them to do that word ministry they're called to do. And so that's how we understand the task of deacons. They're bearing administrative weight for the church to free up the elders to, to lead in ways that are focused on shepherding and uh, leading in light of God's word. Does that make sense? So that's what, that's what deacons are called to do. That's their qualifications and tasks. So th those are really the four, four key principles we have. And I, I want to just uh, make one other comment I think is important here. 
Um, and, and that is, when the Bible talks about the body of Christ in places like Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, it makes really clear that no matter what our gifts, our roles are, we are all one body who care for one another. And I love that. There's not like the elders up there who are this separate part of the body that we kind of, we're the congregation, they're the elders. No, we together are one body. And just like somebody who is gifted with children isn't like, oh, there's the children people over there. No, we're all one body. So it is with the elders or the deacons together, loving one another, rooting for one another, um, rejoicing to see the gifts that God has given each one of us being used for the thriving of the church. Now, sometimes in a church, there can be, there can be struggles for power. And we can start to say, well, it's a congregation to check on the elders, the elders to check on the staff, these kind of things, right? And some of that's understandable. We have to sort all those things through. But, but at a certain level, power struggles in the church shouldn't happen. Because who does all power and all authority belong to? It all belongs to Christ. All of it. So, so all we try and do is, is follow the orders Christ gives. You think of a general. A general who appoints a... Uh, a captain and says, you need, to, you need to stay with these men here until I return. And the general goes away. The general is the one with the authority. The captain who's over here, it's not like the soldiers think, who, who do you think you are, captain, keeping us here? You're power hungry or something like that. No, that's, he's just doing the task that he's been charged to do by the general. That, that captain only errs when he, A, abdicates his responsibility and says, I don't know, you guys do whatever you want to do, I don't care. Or when he establishes his own marching orders different than what the general has said. So God has laid out what the, what the responsibility, what the authority in the congregation is. He has laid out what the authority and responsibility within the elders are, and he gets to decide. And we're only out of line when we're stepping out from what he's established and saying, no, I'm going to do it this way, or I'm abdicating that. So, so the beautiful picture that the Bible gives is one body with each of us using our gifts to lovingly and faithfully serve one another. And it's a beautiful picture. Um, I am not a good magician, I am just tolerably good enough of a magician that I was able to do magic for my kids about five, it stopped being effective about five years ago. So when they were little. The key to my ability to do anything with magic with little kids is the art of misdirection. And this is actually one of the keys in all of magic. But misdirection basically is you have some main thing that you're doing in order to accomplish your trick. For me, it was always put something in my hand. They'd put something in my hand. I'd cover it, and I was going to make it appear somewhere else. And the thing that I had to do, my main task, was to move that coin or whatever it was somewhere else that they would be surprised that it's in this new place. That was my task. And that's what they're all keyed in on as well. This thing is going to appear somewhere else. 
Now I have to use the art of misdirection to distract them from the main thing so that I can do this. And I would do, okay, you got to blow on my hand. you got to concentrate this way. you got to tab my hand or whatever. So while they're doing that, I've slipped out of my hand. They don't even notice I'm doing it. And they're all blowing on my hand. And then I make it appear in these... Four-year-old kids back when you were younger like, oh, dad's amazing. They don't think that anymore, but. I tell that story because God's word has laid out for us kind of what the central things are that we're to be about as a church. When we think of organizing our church, structuring our church. And I don't want to be, I don't want to lose sight of what those main things are. I don't want there to be misdirection in our church. There is a time where we have to talk about low-level stuff because we have to figure out how we're going to do this or do that. And that's, I'm not saying that's out of line. We certainly should do that. But, but we don't want to be distracted by all that from what really matters and what are the most central building blocks from God's word in terms of how we're to operate. And I, as a pastor, actually, I, I've served in three different churches, four if you count an internship, all of them did things differently from one another. And I liked how all four churches did it. I'm only going to be uh, leading if I feel like on those key areas of Scripture, we're out of line. And let's get in line on those things. And the rest, it's not, it's not really that important. Yes, it has to be figured out. Yes, we have to agree how we're going to function. But they're just not that important. And that's not where I'm going to be speaking, because i got opinions. You guys know me well enough. i got opinions on everything. But just let's keep the main things the main thing. So how does our church function? Uh, I just want to kind of at the end of the sermon just make sure this is clear to everyone, because we're doing this in light of the fact that next week you're going to be getting commendation forms where you commend elders and deacons for our church and we're going to be going through the process of appointing that. So I just want everyone to kind of understand how we work. Um, as it relates to elders, we have staff elders and we have lay elders. Um, staff elders are, are basically, we're distinguished because we're paid to do the work of an elder. And um, the church calls staff elders um, by a 75% vote and we're in that role until you fire us or we quit. Lay elders, on the other hand, are appointed by the church through a different process, which I'm going to get into. They serve a three-year term, and then, again, are eligible for a second three-year term, and then are required to take a one-year off before they'd be eligible to serve again. So you can serve a maximum of six years before you're able to take a year off. Here's how that process works. We begin by asking the church to look through a document that just spells out what all those qualifications are for elders. Pray through that and really consider, again, the only question, who are the men in our church who most embody those traits and who are word men? And to commend those men to us, prayerfully, thoughtfully, before, before God. From there... The remaining elders who are not you know, eligible for returning, they're, they're continuing on elders, get together and we look at the commendations and we start with the people who received the most commendations and we move from most commendations on down. And, 
and what we're doing is, is preparing ourselves to bring, bring men to the church to serve as elders. And the process for that, we, we have only one question, and that is, do they meet the biblical qualifications? And we're instructed to only operate on that criteria. So we begin by just reviewing that list and saying, is, is there anything here where somebody knows they just don't meet the biblical qualification? And if they don't, we won't continue that person. If they do, or if there's, if there's no questions that, you know, that if None of the elders know of a reason they're not qualified. Then we begin an interview process where we will approach that person and say, you've been commended. Would you be willing to be interviewed? They have to read some material. This is what an elder is. If they agree to be interviewed, we ask them doctrinal questions and about their, their life. We ask their spouse, their wife, and any um, older children that live in the home if they, how they feel about their father in that role. And then if, if after that process, again, we feel that they meet those biblical qualifications, we ask them if they'd be willing to let their name stand. And we are actually constitutionally obliged to move from the people who receive the most commendations on down. Now, that's, that's actually, I, I, that was one of the things I liked about our church when I first thought about coming here, because it, it invests a lot in the congregation to say, who are the ones who really embody these qualifications? If two or three people think, I think that man embodies those qualifications, it's not as strong as if a group has prayed and said, these are the ones who embody those qualifications. So then we come again to the church with those names, and each name is voted on individually. It takes a 75% vote for those people to be established for that three-year term as elders. So that's, that's our process for elders. And I mentioned that there are staff elders. In our church, we call staff elders pastors. If somebody is doing some of the work of an elder, but usually, you know, as at a place where they're, uh, due to life experience or ministry experience, they're not really ready to be a staff elder, we call them a minister. So if you hear the word pastor here, that's somebody who's functioning on the elder team. One other thing you should know about our church is, you know, so that this elders team that's made up of the lay elders and the staff elders together, um, we want to be really careful about what's called arm's length, that we don't have conflicts of interest. So um, there, there is a board that is a subset of that elders team who handles finances and uh, personnel matters. And, and that is made up of the lay elders who are not either paid members of our church or related to someone who's a paid member of our church. So that avoids conflict of interest. And uh, the senior pastor is an ex-officio, non-voting part of that board. That's how we structure our elders. I'm sure you have questions on that. We don't always do it perfectly. Uh, a year ago, uh, Jim stood up as the chair of our elders and said, hey, I think we, we can grow in some of these things. And I'm sorry for not doing that. I've, I've said that as well. So we're still trying to grow. I'm not saying we do it perfectly. But this is how it's designed, right? Deacons. Um, somewhat similar process. You, you actually have, we actually have staff deacons and lay deacons. The staff deacons, we call them directors. They're paid to do deacon work. Um, but we have uh, lay uh, deacons as well. We, again, we, we ask for commendations. Who meets these biblical qualifications? But it's a little bit different. The, we don't have to move from most commendations on down because we're actually looking for people who can serve in a specific area. So you don't want just the person with the most commendations being the deacon of music because they might be tone deaf. So we're looking for the commendations. We have kind of a combination of three things. The number of commendations, 
their ability and skill in a certain area, gifting, and then also if they're working with an elder, um, just good fit with that elder. There needs to be a good synergy between them. For areas that are word ministry, like music or women's ministry or missions, these kind of things, there's an elder over it giving philosophical, theological direction to it, leading it, and then there's a deacon that comes alongside them to aid in the administrative effort. For areas of responsibility that are more strictly administrative in their nature, like property or finance, we just have a deacon over that. There's an elder that liaises, goes back and forth, just so we all know what's going on, but that deacon really leads that area. So that's how we function. Um, with the deacons, it's a similar process of we, once the elders have kind of determined who would be the right person, we bring that to the church, and the church votes to move forward with them. There may be more questions you have about that, or maybe some of you are like, this was a nice time to fill out my MABC questionnaire. Uh, but actually, I, 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 a little tongue-in-cheek, but these are important things. God gives a lot of attention to certain key priorities. He has actually given our church a blueprint for his temple. That's one of the things he calls us. The body of Christ, he calls us, which that's pretty important if you're calling us Jesus' body. But he also calls us a temple. He's given us the blueprint for his temple in his word. And we need to be people who don't say, well, nice blueprint, thanks God, but I got this great design for a building over here. No, we need to be people who labor over the blueprint and say, this is what we're emphasizing. This beam needs to stay here, even if we think the church would look more beautiful moving it. Keep those things central and give ourselves to that. Why? Because God wants the world to know the gospel. And he's designed us to be a pillar and buttress of truth. And he knows best how for us to accomplish that. And so he's given us his blueprint. And so we look to his priorities and get after those things. It's a great honor to be trusted as the architects who are given that blueprint to say, let's build this and let's do this God's way. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for entrusting us to build your church your way. Thank you for a body of Christ that is actually laboring to do that well. I think of um, eight years ago reading through the bylaws that this church had established and seeing that these things mattered to this church. They were building it on the right things. And I'm thankful that even in the last year and a half where we've had to have some conversations about how exactly this is structured, that that works, that collectively this body cares about the main things and keeping those central. And I pray that you would continue to help us to be a people who, who, who steward the responsibility you've given us well, who help our church to be built in the way you've designed. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.